This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Samuel chapter 13 verses 1 through 29. If you want to take a moment to find it in the Pew Bible or on your device. 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 29. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made, and brought them into the chamber chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her, and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? And as for you... You would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother. For this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long robe that she wore. And she laid her her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But then Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. After two full years, Absalom has sheep shears at Bel Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your, ser- your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and the servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go. But he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as you can tell, we're looking at the life of King David. And David has gone from a child of destiny, where he was anointed as a boy by the prophet Samuel to be the once and future king, the great high king. And then we find him as a teenager, a brave shepherd who goes out and kills the great uh, Goliath, the giant Goliath. And then we next find him uh, as a famous warrior who is persecuted by Saul, um, but he prevails over King Saul. And then he is made the great king that he was always promised to be. And he was promised an everlasting kingdom. And it looks like the story is just going up and up and up and up. But then last week we saw that it begins to come down. And we saw that uh, he violated Bathsheba as a kind of a wicked tyrant. And he um, killed her husband. And now we see this week, and this is many years later. So although it's not many chapters later, the children have grown up now. And so Amnon is probably in his 20s. So this is much later, at least a decade. And we see that David has become this kind of passive coward who basically silently watches. I mean, he gets angry, but he silently watches his oldest boy commit a crime and basically does nothing, even though he is the law of the land. He is the king. Uh, he does nothing. And so uh, somebody asked me today, when are we going to get to Advent? You know, what are, what are we doing next? Because I've had enough of the life of David and all of the darkness, and it doesn't get any better from this point on. It just continues to go downhill. Um, but, you know, I think the only way to interpret the story of David is through this lens that uh, I think we see throughout the whole scriptures. And it's what Martin Luther 
uh, called The Theology of the Cross. And Luther is famous for starting the Protestant Reformation and for justification by faith alone. But this idea of the theology of the cross was just as central uh, to his project. And um, he saw the theology of the cross as the opposite of kind of that, uh, what is sometimes called triumphalism, just kind of up and up and up, where you have constant success and ascendancy and uh, to the point of leading to greater and greater virtue and perfection and infallibility. And these are the things that Luther saw the Church of Rome doing and saying, achievement and uh, merit and all that. And Luther said uh, that the Bible teaches a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. And he says, uh, Luther says, uh, we prefer glory instead of the cross. We prefer good works instead of suffering and strength instead of weakness. And a contemporary Lutheran theologian uh, sees this today in the American Evangelical Church. If you haven't seen that, um, this theologian looking at us evangelicals says that uh, there is a triumphalism about us where, quote, we prize success in finding the answers and winning the battles and living happily ever after. My strength, my power, my work. And this guy, uh, his name is Gene Edward Veith, and he says that um, the problem with all this um, is that, again, he says, if we experience failure and weakness, this is a quote from him, if the church has problems or if we're not healed, then we are utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of faith or maybe even the existence of God. And I know people, uh, I know some of you have struggled with that. Um, I know I've struggled with that because we just expect these things from God and Instead of getting a theology of glory, we get the theology of the cross, and we don't know what to do. But the theology of the cross is clearly expressed in the Beatitudes, for instance, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who are hungering, um, blessed are the merciful. But it's not just, it didn't start with the cross, it didn't start with Jesus. You see this in the Old Testament. Where it says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the broken things of this world. The things down at the bottom of the aquarium. Those creatures, those denizens of the depths. In Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I dwell in a high and holy place, but I also dwell with the oppressed. uh, With the humble of spirit. With the people that you might meet at crisis control if you volunteer and meet one of these people, if you have a relationship with one of these people. Uh, God is not, Yahweh was never a God of the conquering empires. Uh, Yahweh was not the God of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Greeks. Uh, He was very careful to distinguish himself from uh, Marduk, or Ra, or Asher, or Zeus, or Zervan, the God of the Persians. He He said, I'm not like those gods. Uh, instead, he is the God of the wandering patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who really ne- never had any home to live in. He's the God of the oppressed uh, Israelites in Egypt. He is the God of the exiles in Babylon, the God of the suffering Psalms, some of the Psalms we sang tonight. Um, he is the God of Job's suffering, of Jeremiah's lamentation. The entire book is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, a book called Lamentations. He is the God of Esther and her terror, what she experienced. And he is also the God of Tamar and this nightmare 
that it's hard to even hear. When Caroline read that, it's hard to even really listen to that. If you were listening carefully, um, it's really hard to take that in. But I, I, I think the only way to process this, as I thought about this passage this week, first of all, I thought, why did I pick this passage? Especially after picking Bathsheba last week. And then I thought, well, um, where is the hope in this passage? And I was talking about that with Margie and my wife. I said, where, where is the hope in this passage? And um, over time, I just thought the only way to, to interpret this passage is if you put a big cross, you know, not like a Baroque gilded frame that you would put around a nice oil painting, but rather uh, like really crude, rough-hewn boards, like, like a Roman instrument of torture really would have had, that kind of would give you a splinter if you rubbed your finger across it. That's got to be the frame, I think, around which we read this story, or it just doesn't really make any sense. Um, as one theologian says, it's a text of terror. Phyllis Tribble, who taught at Wake Forest Divinity School, one of the first professors, she calls it a text of terror. And, and it, it, it is. And the only way to see it is through this uh, theology of the cross, putting a frame of the cross around it. So I want to look at, at Tamar first and what happens to her. And then I want to look at Absalom, which is why I included that second part. I want to look at how he reacts to this, this tragedy of, of his sister. So, first of all, Tamar. Um, you might think when you first read the story, oh, this is going to be about Amnon. This is about the oldest son of David, the next king of Israel. Um, this is uh, Tamar's half-brother. And... Um, you begin to realize that, that Amnon is like his dad in terms of lust and violence and perversion. And uh, we know that whereas his dad was a, uh, a shepherd, he grew up poor, um, who grew up with nothing, who was an outcast in his family, the little runt of the family. Whereas David was all that, uh, Amnon was a prince. He was always um, treated with dignity and basically got whatever he wanted. And because his dad was so morally weakened by his sin with Bathsheba, uh, he never disciplined Amnon. And so uh, he had, uh, Amnon was kind of, uh, he, was a, he was like David, but worse. He was a monster. Um, and the interesting thing about the story is that the, the narrator is not that interested in Amnon. Really, you get no sense of the man at all. He's kind of this soulless, faceless, inhuman, like a beast. He's just driven by desire. And I think the fascinating thing about this story is that the focus of the author is completely on Tamar. And when, when it was read, again, if you were listening, you were feeling what she felt. The narrator puts you in her shoes and uh, all of her compassion, the way she helps uh, her brother and all of her hopes and all of her horror and her desolation, all that, you feel that if you're listening carefully to the story. And that's a remarkable thing, that this ancient text would put you in her shoes. So first you see in verse 8 that um, when she learns he's sick, she goes right to her brother. And she takes uh, his favorite uh, dough and kneads it into cakes that he loves. And in his sight, she bakes it. She's compassionate. She's brave. She's willing to come near him. Even when everyone is sitting out of the room in verse 10, uh, he has everybody leave and he says, bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. And you feel the danger as a reader. Even if you didn't know it was coming, as someone who knows the Bible, you, you might have known what was coming. But um, first time reader, you feel the danger there because you know what Jonadab and 
Amnon had planned. And so she, she remains courageous, even though everybody's left the room. And it says in verse 10, she took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother, and comes right up next to him. And uh, even when he grabs her, she doesn't just wilt and give up. She keeps talking and keeps fighting. And she, I think it's important that she retains her power of speech. She communicates. She will not stop communicating. And verse 12 says, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And I'm not saying she wasn't terrified. She obviously was. But what I'm saying is that she didn't lose her humanity. Being made in the image of God and a creature who communicates with relationship, she doesn't give that up. And she just keeps talking to him. Where, where could I carry my shame? She's trying to reason with him like he's not an animal. And she continues to treat him as a person instead of just a mute object of his desire. Please speak to the king in verse 13. He will not withhold me from you. And even after it's too late, uh, she's fighting for hope. She's fighting that something good could come of this. Um, that maybe, maybe he's Amnon be willing to, to marry her. Um, she continues to fight for hope. And uh, Amnon in verse 15, I think the thing that is most maybe of all the repulsive things he did, verse 15 is, um, is especially so. He kind of tries to dump all of his shame on her. And this is a very powerful moral insight into uh, the nature of sin and guilt and self-loathing. Because in verse 15, it says that he hated her with a hatred that was greater than the love that he had had initially. And he says to her, get up and get out of here. Because he hates her because he had violated her. And, And all the shame that he feels, he just dumps all on her and makes her the scapegoat. And even then, though, she will, not, uh, she will not give up. She will not let him strip her of her dignity. And she says in verse 16, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is even greater than the other that you did to me. So she keeps speaking to the point that Amnon has to just eject her out of his presence. He can't stand the sight of her. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman... And notice he won't use her name there. That's a sign of derision. Anytime in the Bible that kind of phrase, this fellow, this woman, um, that's a sign of, of disrespect. Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. He can't even stand to be in her presence. Now, um, my point in all this is that the narrator is saying that, sh- that she is stronger than he is. In verse, it says in verse 14, he's stronger than her, and that's physically true, but... The one with the strength, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the strength of a stoic who doesn't feel anything or tries to act like they're strong internally. I'm talking about the, the strength of Job or the strength of, uh, of Jesus on the cross where they're terrified, they're trembling, and yet they will not let go. They're the righteous sufferer. And that's the strength that she has that makes her human, whereas he has none of them. And I'm also saying that by telling the story the way that this narrator does um, the author focuses on her completely and you see what she sees and you hear what she hears uh, and you feel what she feels and what's so remarkable about that is that the the author of the story um, if you believe in uh, the miraculous and the supernatural uh, we as Christians believe that it is the Holy Spirit who wrote the story I mean somebody 
wrote it, um, and it may, have, it may have been a woman who first passed this story down. It was compiled by someone much later who created this thing called First and Second Samuel. But the original story, uh, it has the, you know, the, the touch of a, of a woman's hand and sight. But we know that above all those things, it was the Holy Spirit who wrote the story. And uh, because we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe the Holy Spirit is the one who wants you to experience the sympathy and, um, and feel what Tamar is going through. It says in verse 19, uh, Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe she wore, laid her hand on her head, and went away weeping aloud. And you're supposed to feel that. That didn't have to be in there. Um, in an ancient story like this, where women um, were almost never featured in a story, women were um, mostly the objects of a, a man's pleasure back then. And so to have this written of her, uh, I think what that tells you about God is very important. Namely, that God is a God uh, who is with us in our suffering. Um, when um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was about to be executed, he was, he was in a Nazi prison, and he wrote to his fiancée that he never saw again uh, just before his execution, and he wrote, the only thing that helps is the suffering God. And I think that uh, that would be true of Tamar also. That only thing, the only thing that could help her is that she is enveloped in the consciousness of the Holy Spirit who writes about her. And he wrote about her because he was with her. Emmanuel, God with us in that suffering. And so um, when you are suffering, you need to know that God is highly aware of every single feeling that you feel. And if it was written down about you, he would write down the details also. I think that's the, the thing this passage is telling us. I know when I was um, in really deep pain, I was a brand new Christian, and uh, it was one of the lowest points of my life, and I was running around, I was jogging around, listening uh, to my, back then we had tape players, and so it wasn't a random playlist, it would just go to the next song. And the next song uh, was Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon Garfunkel. And uh, the lyrics are, when you're weary and feeling small, when the tears are in your eyes, and I was crying, I'll dry them all, I will dry them all, I'm on your side, when times get rough and friends can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. And they weren't talking about God, but I heard it as God. I heard it as God feeling these things with me. Um, Right there, stride for stride. And the the attention that I was experiencing with God, his eye upon me, uh, that was the only thing that could help me there. And so I think that no matter how large or small your suffering on the spectrum, it really doesn't matter. And you've got to be very careful with saying, well, I'm only suffering this. It's nothing compared to that. And, you know, there's always something beyond what you compare it to. So don't do that. Uh, Instead, think that um, God has wrapped me in his thoughts, that in my suffering, um, it says in Psalm 56, 8, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle and recorded each in your book. And so if you think of every tear you've ever cried as being collected in a bottle, obviously not literally, but what a great 
metaphor. Psalm 56, 8, for God to inspire. And that would include, of course, the tears of Timar. And they say in counseling that you have to feel to heal. You've got to feel what you've been through to heal of that thing. And uh, I would just add that you've got to feel to heal and feel that God is with you as you feel and that he feels for you too. Isaiah 63, 9 says, in all of their suffering, he also suffered. In all of his people's suffering, God also suffered. And that's referring back to the Exodus when they were in slavery. In all of their suffering, God also suffered. So that's point one about Tamar and um, God's reaction to Tamar. Her father didn't really do anything about her sufferings. In verse 21, it says, when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. uh, But then absolutely nothing happened. So uh, her, her dad didn't defend her at all, did nothing except just get angry inside. But her heavenly father uh, was right there with her in her suffering. So that's point one. Now, point two is that uh, David's inaction leads Absalom to do what he did. And then that is going to continue to have uh, like billiard ball effects down the line throughout the rest of the story. We saw last week that when David violated Bathsheba, God said, from now on, there's going to be trouble in your whole house. And I'm going to bring ruin and misery into your whole house, meaning your household, your family. And we're going to see that. And it kind of starts here when David doesn't do anything to punish Amnon. Again, he's so morally crippled. And so what happens? Well, Absalom takes revenge. The brother of Tamar takes revenge. And he murders his brother. For two years, uh, he stores up this anger. Uh, he plots this plot. If you've ever read The Count of Monte Cristo, it's like that, you know, um, Dante's plans for years, the downfall of the people who attacked him. And actually, when he, when he gets uh, the thing that he wants, when he, he gets his revenge, it doesn't do anything at all for him. Uh, he, he finds no solace in that. And the same is true of Absalom. But in verse 20, it says, Her brother Am, uh, Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. And the first time I read that, I thought, that's very insensitive. What is, what is he talking about? Why is he telling her to be quiet? Well, what he's saying there is, um, don't let anyone know about this thing. I, I've got this. I'm going to take care of this. And immediately he's thinking revenge. That uh, he is going to take care of the one who did this to his sister in her honor. And so 24 months he's planning the execution of his brother who his hatred must have just grown and grown and grown and probably never went away Um, he calmly waits till everything is cooled down till there's no more suspicion till Amnon is willing to go to his house till David is willing to let Amnon go to his house because I'm sure David was suspicious of what would happen but he waits two years and he says I'm going to have a big banquet and all my brothers are going to come and dad you're welcome to come too and it, it looks all nice and happy and I guess David assumes that they're fine with each other. He's very happy that they have resolved things. But then Absalom tells his servants in verse 28, When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. As they say, revenge is a meal best served cold. And that's, that's cold, what he's doing right there. He's plotted this whole thing out, and he's having his men get his brother drunk and then murdering him. And so that is a reaction to what happens to Tamar, is, is vengeance and payback. 
And when I was talking with uh, Margie originally about where is the hope in this passage, I said, I think the hope in this passage is, is revenge. I mean, I, I, love, I loved reading when Absalom uh, kills, well, he has his men kill Amnon. I loved, I loved, Amnon is one of the most despicable characters in the Bible. And I just loved the part when uh, he plots his whole thing out and has him killed. And I don't know if you're like me, but that felt like that was satisfying. That was really good. That's the, the appropriate reaction to all this stuff. And uh, if you know the story of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Epstein, Epstein, he was a serial sex offender who did to uh, these victims what Amnon did to Tamar, but then serial fashion again and again and again and again, and even more perverted and despicable ways. He was, he was truly a monster, a horrible, horrible. I can't think of anybody worse, actually, that I've ever heard of. Than this man, the friend of presidents and powerful people. And, uh, he, and he was caught and arrested, which, uh, which I found extremely satisfying. And again, you want him to pay so badly. And then what happened was uh, somehow he found a way while he was awaiting trial. Um, he, he killed himself. He committed suicide. And it's kind of like when Hitler commit suicide, you're just kind of outraged by it. You're so frustrated that that would happen. And one of the victims, uh, Courtney Wilde, said he robbed us, all of us who are victims, he robbed us of our day in court to confront him one by one. And for that, he is a coward. And the fact that I will never have a chance to face my predator in court eats away at my soul. And then another victim said, I am angry that he is not alive anymore to pay the price for his actions. And again, I'm saying that's what I feel about um, Amnon and Absalom and the, the vengeance. It feels great. It feels like that's the solution. And I'm, I'm, there's obviously something to justice, so I'm not saying that that's not important. But, but, does, the, but does the suffering of either of these men, these sex offenders, does that really solve the problem? I mean, is, there, is the hope that maybe they will suffer a little bit more? Maybe... Uh, instead of having them stab him and get him drunk, maybe if they had tortured him, then we would have felt better about it. And obviously the answer is no. That The suffering of the victim is not really the solution to all this. It didn't help Absalom at all. It just created more destruction in his family. And we'll get to that next week. But the point is that payback is not the good news. Which brings me back to the first point, which is that the only thing that helps as Bonhoeffer said, is the God who suffers. And Isaiah 53.3, also inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with deepest grief. And Isaiah is writing that about some son of David. He doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. The spirit who inspired him knows what he's talking about. But David doesn't really know what he's talking about. But he's thinking about some person that's going to come who's a son of David. And this person is going to somehow um, rescue people like Tamar and like Bathsheba and all the people who were oppressed. And uh, they would rescue that person, it says, by being despised and rejected themselves and acquainted with the deepest grief. And so I I don't know exactly what... um, Isaiah thought about that, or even if he knew what he was writing there. But he knew that somebody was going to come who was like royalty, who was powerful, a Messiah of some kind. 
And that Messiah was going to, in some way, fuse himself to our suffering and uh, become one with us in our suffering. And a great Old Testament scholar, um, his name's Terence Fretheim, he says uh, that Yahweh suffers because he has completely and intimately bound himself to his created world, especially his people. In other words, that uh, God has, uh, in some sense, tied himself to the mast of our sinking ship. And, uh, and we know that what Isaiah was talking about was the, was the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. God incarnate, the Son of, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Spirit who inspires is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity. He comes, and he, he comes here to suffer with us. And uh, binds himself completely to us. Luther said, again, this is Luther, if it is not true that God died for us, but only that a man died, then we are lost. It must be God's passion, God's blood, God's death. And if you're wondering what that looks like, that is, that is what we celebrate every meal, um, every time we gather in this meal. Uh, we, th- this is a a sign to us, and not just words, but an actual participation in something where you get up out of your seat, you come down here, you take this stuff, uh, you receive it, you put it into your body. And it's more than words. It is the presence of God in the midst of suffering in this meal. This is the uh, Isaiah 53 moment. Uh, who, the despised, rejected one, acquainted with deepest grief, in this meal, he comes to dwell with us in our darkness here. It's like that, uh, that group of 12 boys in Thailand uh, who were trapped for two weeks in a cave way down under the, under the ground, 2.5 miles down, trapped for two weeks. Obviously, all the food was gone. The lights were gone. They were probably freezing cold. Um, and uh, this, these divers come, uh, these Navy SEALs, and they come in there. And I, I just thought about, it's a six-hour journey. Um, these scuba divers come down there. and I mean, the, the kids, these 12 kids, they have no idea that anyone's coming while the scuba divers are coming down there. And then just imagine darkness, hunger, alone for all these many uh, days, two weeks. And then all of a sudden you hear like voice, a human voice. And then you, uh, you see some kind of light coming up out of the, the water. And then you see the, these huge, strong divers themselves come up out of the water. Again, in Isaiah 63, 9, it says, In all their sufferings, he suffered to personally rescue them. And we know actually one of those divers did, did die in that rescue. To be with those kids, to rescue those kids. And when we feel that same sense of aloneness and rejection... And deepest grief, uh, as did uh, Tamar.